The Buddha's attendant, Ananda, once asked the Buddha, is part of our path about love, compassion, and generosity? And the Buddha replied, no, it's not. He said, not part of our path, but the whole of our path is about compassion, love, and generosity. Now, when you've read enough suttas, you know that the Buddha said that about a number of things. So he said that about wisdom. He said it about um, sangha, about community. But anyway, maybe all these things are the whole of our path, and we can't fragment them. But this is what I'd like to talk about tonight, is basically metta, loving-kindness. And I'll start with something by Rumi. The way of love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. Birds make great sky circles of their freedom. How do they learn it? They fall, and falling, they're given wings. So in speaking about metta, I want to speak about the parami of metta. And last night I spoke about this word parami, meaning a sense of wholeness or a sense of completion. Another way it's translated is as a perfection. However, not in the way we usually think about perfection, needing to be perfect. Aiken Roshi, who was a really wonderful Zen teacher, said that perfection is a process. Perfection is a process. So it means that this doesn't have to do with accomplishments or becoming this or that. It means that we're setting the course in a certain way. We're setting our direction in a certain way. And so when we talk about metta, we're setting the course of our lives in the direction of metta. We develop the quality of metta in our formal sitting practice and in just the way as we just practiced. We formally practice metta. We lay everything else aside whatever other methods or techniques we're using, and we formally take it up in our sitting practice. However, we can also encourage metta, whatever the method or technique is that we're using, and it is an aspect of mindfulness. So if we're looking at our experience in a judgmental, condemning way, It's not really mindfulness, because mindfulness includes loving-kindness. Mindfulness includes metta. So, in other words, it's kind of good news, you know? If we're taking up any method or technique, it's not like we have to practice metta in a formal way. It's going to come about anyway. It's going to be cultivated if our orientation is towards looking at whatever experience is happening in a friendly and open-hearted way. So it's just another way to develop metta. We don't want to think that the only way is in formal sitting practice and the formal practice of metta, because that's not so. Anytime you practice, there can be metta. 
if there is this orientation towards warmth and friendliness and acceptance and allowing. You know, because these are all qualities of metta, to allow our experience, to accept our experiences, to make space for all experiences. You know, this wonderful question, can I make room for this? You know, no, I can't make room for it. Okay, can I make room for not being able to make room for it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's always a way in. <laughs> so this is a metta-like quality that we can practice, whether we're taking up the formal practice of metta or not. And then, of course, out of our formal practice, out when we're not sitting in a formal way, when we're not walking in a formal way, metta can be practiced all the time in our everyday life because of mostly the presence of other people. You know, There's always somebody around to send metta towards, and there's always yourself if there's no one around. You know, metta can always be practiced. And we can also we can also work with how we move about through the world. I think sometimes it's really helpful to pay attention to the hands. How do we open a door? You know? Do we open it in a kind of impatient, irritated way, like it's there to serve us? Or is there metta in our hands? You know? Can one take up the practice of metta simply by being more aware of the hands and how we pick things up and how we put things down and whether we're grasping and clinging? You know, because we use our hands all day long in one way or another. Are we pushing objects away or people away or this or that away with our hands? So bringing the attention to our hands is a way to actually practice metta. So we can practice metta in a very free-form kind of way, in a very unstructured way in our everyday life, including more and more in our field of metta. We want to include more and more because we all have arenas where it's fairly easy. And then there are huge aspects of our experience that we leave out. So we're trying to see what we leave out, and then we're seeing if we can include it, invite it in. So including more and more aspects of life, more and more aspects of our experience within our field of loving-kindness. Now I read this poem to begin with about how the way of love is devastation because it's not easy. I think we have to really be aware that it's not easy. And if you read about like a metta um, day long or a metta retreat or a metta workshop, it sounds great. It sounds so good. It's so compelling. And I make up these descriptions myself. So, (laughs) you know, strengthening the heart and softening the, 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 you know, the whole thing just sounds so, so absolutely wonderful. And then you come and you're kind of stuck, you know, because then you actually have to do it. And doing it, of course, sometimes it's easy and fluid and buoyant and effortless. And other times, it's just really hard. And that's the reality of it. It's not a problem. It's not a personal insult. It's not like you don't have enough metta. 
It's just that sometimes it's heavy lifting when we're up against particular edges of metta experience. Sometimes it can be heavy lifting, and that's okay too. You know, whether it's easy and effortless is just the same as when it's heavy lifting and difficult. It's just that um, sometimes it is that way. And it's our way of being able to include more and more. So we enjoy it when it's easy and effortless and buoyant, and we don't make trouble. You know, we don't think, oh, this should be hard. <laughs> we can make trouble for ourselves in a million different ways, can't we? You know, so it's, it's easy, it's flowing, it's, you know, it's yummy, and we're thinking it should be hard, you know? But that is just the way it is. And then other times, it's really hard. It's devastation. It's difficult. And then it's not like it should be easy. That's just the way it is. So this is how we grow in metta, is practicing whether it's easy or whether it's hard. Of course, it does require patience and perseverance because every aspect of the path requires that. It also requires courage, you know, because we are going into new terrain when we are asking ourselves to include what we have never wanted to include before, you know, our resistances and this and that. We are definitely going into new territory. And so because of that, it does take courage. Yeah? And it does take a willingness to try to see in new ways. That's some of what happens with metta is we are, we are learning how to see with eyes of metta. Instead of seeing with eyes of judgment, eyes of condemnation, eyes of comparison, eyes of measurement and evaluation, we are actually learning how to see in a more benign and warm and friendly way ourselves and one another. So this word metta is translated in a number of different ways, like a lot of Pali words are. You know, you use the word dukkha and you could talk on and on and on for a long time about what the word dukkha means, and yet oftentimes it's translated in quite a crude way as being suffering. Many of the Pali words are like that. You know, you, you use one word, but it's not doesn't really mean that. So generally with Pali words, you want to use a number of different words so that we can find our way into what the real meaning is. So with metta, of course, what we've heard over and over again is that the word metta means loving-kindness. And I would say, you know, big emphasis on the kindness part of that, that really it's a kindness, it's, it's developing a, a, a kindness of, of being, a kindness of heart. But of course it has the lightness and the, the buoyancy of love. It's just not the Hollywood kind of love. It's not conditioned love. It's unconditioned love. And that's what we're aiming for, is love that is truly unconditioned. When I was um, in this forest monastery in Thailand, I was actually there twice, ten years difference between each visit, each time of practicing there. But both times I had similar experiences I thought that sounds really romantic and wonderful to be in the forest in Thailand, right? 
And I thought it was going to be quiet and, um, I don't know, like forests around, around here probably or certainly in the States or other places that I've been. It was definitely probably one of the noisiest places I've ever been in my whole entire life, um, which is common actually for Asian monasteries. Uh, in this particular monastery, somebody had set free chickens at some point, and so they all became wild. So there were all these wild chickens that were calling to one another from one end of the monastery to the other end of the monastery. And I don't know if you've ever heard a wild chicken, but they are so loud. And they really, you know, they all have a lot to say. I have no idea what. <laughs> but it was really, truly noisy. And um, there was another another very loud feature, which was um, that there were squirrels and the huts had these aluminum roofs. So these crazy squirrels, I mean, I've never seen squirrels like this in my life, they would jump on one of the aluminum, aluminum roofs and shake, you know, because it, it shook the whole hut. And then they would jump off to somebody else's hut. And then that's how they would make their way through the monastery, is from hut to hut to hut. You know? So every time it was this gigantic, loud, sudden noise, and you, you would kind of be jolted, you know? But the other source of sound was that the first time I was there around um, Christmas time. And in many, um, in many Asian villages, this monastery was very, was right very near to a village. And this makes sense because this is how the monks eat, is to go around um, for alms round in the village. But in many um, villages in, in um, at least Thailand and Burma, which are the two places that I practiced in, in the villages there are these huge loudspeakers. Like each village has a very, very big, I've seen them, really big, not, not like a small trumpet, but a gigantic trumpet, you know, a really big loudspeaker. And around Christmas time there were all of these Christmas songs. So I'd be sitting, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and it would be just the usual Christmas songs that we're used to. I was thinking I had tried to get away from <laughs> this kind of thing, and it was haunting me. But then after Christmas, what started to occur were songs that I didn't recognize, um, of course, um, sung in Thai, but I just knew that they were love songs. You know, I could just tell that they were like pop Thai love songs. They had that kind of lilt to them. And for a little bit, I wondered what the words were, you know. <laughs> I just wondered what, what, um, what was being sung in terms of the words. And then I realized, you know, if they're love songs, then what are they? I love you until you do something I don't like and then I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> just the, the normal condition kind of love. So this is not, this is not meta. You know, this is this is the kind of Hollywood love that is not unconditioned loving kindness. So metta is a kind of goodwill, you know, a kind of I don't know. Even I want to use the word relentless, relentless um, friendliness, or that which is benign. Someone once asked His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, he said to, to His Holiness, you have such daunting responsibilities and you're taking care of you know, this huge group of people who are really dependent on you. 
and you have a lot of troubles, you have a lot of difficulties, and everybody looks up to you, you know? So, you know, kind of who, if, if, if you had hair, who would you be able to put your hair down with? Who would you be able to hang out with? Who, who would be your buddy? You know, who would be your peer? And what he said was that um, everybody is my peer. You know, everybody is my peer. In other words, I took from that that he has that sense of friendliness and ease of well-being with everyone. You know? So it's not like he's, he's separating anyone or doesn't feel like he's himself with everyone. You know, perhaps this everyone is my peer means that we can feel at home and ourselves with everyone rather than presenting ourselves in different ways to different people, which is so exhausting. And such um, it's just it's just so tiring to do. There's so much tension in it when we're trying to appear differently to uh, ourselves and to others, to one person, to then to another person, to one group of people, to another group of people. That lack of authenticity just points to a lack of trust in our own goodness of being. So I think this everyone is my peer thing means that we can feel at ease in this world. We can feel at ease within our bodies, within our psyches, within our skins, so that we don't have to make the sense of separation, so that we can be comfortable with all beings. It is indeed a wish for real happiness for ourselves and others. And you could say as well that it's a spiritual um, helpfulness. It's unlimited acceptance, and it is indeed a kind of warmth. When CIMC began 28 years ago now, right when we began, um, I don't know if many of you know Bob Thurman, but he is a really wonderful translator for the Dalai Lama, and a real, I mean, he's really a, a fun person to be around as well. And he asked us if a particular Rinpoche could come to the center and give talks. Uh, and the Rinpoche's name was Tarotolko. So for um, probably, I don't know, maybe six months, I can't remember how long, but perhaps four to six months, every single week, he would come and stay overnight in the center where I lived at that time. And he would give a talk. And then we would have a big family dinner um, you know, kind of beware of devotees because there were devotees. This was a vegetarian center, and um, people were carrying racks of lamb, you know, up the up the stairs, and we really just couldn't do anything about it because it had to go to the Rinpoche. I'm sure he could care less whether he had lamb that night, but anyway, um, it was kind of one of those scenes. But we all fell in love with one another because we were spending so much time together. And they just developed this kind of affection and appreciation for one another. And he gave a series of talks, and then he died um, not that long after he died. I had a kind of nice um, pen pal thing with him for a little bit, but then he died. And um, one of his devotees, whom I'm very grateful to, put together a book 
of experiences that we had had with, with him. And it's kind of a very homespun book, you know, but I just, I found it not all that long ago, and I looked through it, and I saw, oh, this person was there at that time and said this about him and his experiences, and of course I looked up what I said, you know. And, um, and what I said, I said, coming out of our small meditation room and beaming at me, of all my memories of Tara Tokel, the clearest is his smile. It split his face apart and hit me in the heart every time. And it really did. There was this physicality to it. You know, whenever he smiled at me, it was so um, such a physically moving kind of experience. And I don't know, you know, if you know the difference between Tibetan lamas and our, our monks. You know, our monks can't hug or, or touch you in any way. And... Um, you know, it was it was very nice, just kind of the casualness. I, I love our bunks, so this is not a not undermining at all. But it was it was so nice to have the casualness of of just a hug every so every so often, that kind of easygoing affection that he exhibited. Years later, somebody sent me through the mail a little tiny picture of what was supposedly his reincarnation. This cute little boy. You know? <laughs> I mean, I have no idea, but the little boy was, was really quite adorable. So, metta also means, and this is a really interesting translation, it means to stand near to. So, when we look at standing near to something, what does that mean? Of course, it implies non-abandonment. It implies non-rejection. It implies a sense this standing near to ourselves, all experiences, phenomena, conditioning, it implies a connecting as beings, all wanting ease, all aspiring to ease. You know, and this is sometimes a gigantic leap of faith, but oftentimes if we look more deeply at actions, our own actions and the actions of others, we can see that although oftentimes it's utterly pathetic, you know, it's utterly pathetic. You can see that underneath it, there is this desire for ease and relief and peace. You know? So connecting with all beings from that point of view, stepping into a world of interconnectedness. We look around, we all have these separate bodies, and so it looks like we are separate. You know, We have this illusion of separateness because each one of us has a body that has boundaries when we are looking visually. When we look more deeply, we see that we actually share a mind, we actually share consciousness, and that that does not have any boundaries. There's a sense of non-separation when we look at this shared consciousness. And so to, to sense that is really important. It is a matter of stepping into this world of interconnectedness because it's harder it's harder to have ill will towards that which isn't separate. You know, it's harder. We have to kind of rev it up to have ill will towards that which isn't separate. We are realigning our hearts with an essential goodness within and we are relearning what we have forgotten. This is from Galway Canal. The bud stands for all things. 
even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. We are remembering, we are relearning what we have forgotten. Now, I don't know how all of you grew up, and maybe it's better in Canada than it is in the States. I don't know, first time I've taught here. But I know a lot of people who were brought up in religions in which they were taught uh, the theory of original sin. And I sometimes think that even if you weren't um, given this teaching of original sin because of the religion that you were brought up in, that somehow you've absorbed it through the culture. You know, this teaching of original sin, something being wrong with you, something being inherently wrong with you. And so having always to claw your way and scrape your way around and try to justify your existence, try to be active, try to even help people as a way to um, feel okay about yourself. You know, this lack of trust in oneself. I have to say that um, I was kind of lucky. My mother was Catholic and my father was Jewish, so they canceled one another. <laughs> I could have gotten the double dose. <laughs> but um, somehow it just, they, they, they didn't really make sense, you know, when you put them together. So it kind of collapsed under its own weight. <laughs> but something is very wonderful in, in Buddhism. I'm not saying that I missed it all and that when I came to Buddhism I didn't feel incredibly fortunate to have this other really radically different teaching because I'm not sure. Um, it just seems to be in, the, in the, the air that we breathe as children or teenagers or young adults or whatever. But in the um, Buddhist teaching, what the Buddha taught was original goodness. You know, this is so different than original sin or original badness, original goodness. So what this allows us to do is in our practice to develop more and more confidence and trust in our original goodness. And then what we're working with is what gets in the way. We're working with the obscurations. We're working with that which veils the natural radiance of the heart, the natural luminescent nature of the mind. And so it's very, very different. I mean, it really allows one to breathe more easily when there is this growing confidence. And I I know, you know, you have to take a leap of faith with this one, you know, especially if you were brought up with the idea of original sin or original wrongness or badness. You have to take a bit of a leap. But it is a well-worth-it kind of leap because you're not going to hurt yourself. Um, I don't know. You know, when you've been at this for a long time, you know it is true. It's not like you just take it on rumor because the Buddha said it. You know it within your own being, that it's actually true. So if you take that leap, you're not going to hurt yourself. You're not going to, you know, fall. You're not going to um, harm yourself in any way. You're just going to understand what 
um, those who have been at this practice with great diligence and dedication, um, you know, over who knows how long, we can't even just use this one lifetime, who knows how long, but there it will be that resting place for you, and this is for sure. We are tapping into, we are uncovering, we are recognizing that metta, loving kindness, this kind of inner essential goodness is inwardly generated. It's inwardly generated. Once in a while, you can get a glimpse of this, maybe not living in it all the time, maybe living in it more often than not, and at least every so often, everything cracking and getting a glimpse of the fact that metta is inwardly generated. We use these phrases, may I, which probably everybody's somewhat familiar with, the metta phrases, may I be safe and protected, be peaceful. You know, so we're always using may I. You just don't want to think of the may I as pleading or begging for something that you don't already have. We don't want to come about this with a kind of deprivation because that is not the reality of things. It's not a wish for what we don't have. It's, it's kind of a way of jump-starting what we do have and what we are. You know, it's a way of kind of jump-starting the whole thing because the weeds have overgrown the, um, the whole thing. And so the lotus flower has a little bit of a hard time breaking through, breaking out. So we're unlocking. It's almost like metta is like a key, you know, that allows us to unlock the beauty of the heart. It reminds and it awakens. It is not an effort to convince oneself. It is not an effort to deny the difficulties of life. It's not an effort to force or to plead. It is a tapping into. That's really what metta is, metta practice is, whether formal or informal. It's a tapping into. So there are two qualities that we need to remember. One quality is boundlessness, and the other quality is unconditionality. And what it means for metta to be boundless is it means that it's got to go in all directions. You know, it's got to be um, more than vast. It's got to be measureless. It has to go in every direction. So what that means is inwardly and outwardly, outwardly and inwardly, in both directions, It has to go towards ourselves, and it has to go towards others. It has to go towards others, and it has to go towards ourselves. It has to go towards every aspect of our inner experience. Every single aspect of our inner experience. Towards all phenomena, towards all conditions, towards all situations. This was what it means to be boundless. Metta is not a feeling or an emotion. It's an intention. And this is a very important point because sometimes when we're you know, cultivating metta or developing metta or allowing it to mature or this kind of thing, we feel like we've already failed because we're not feeling 
um, this incredible kind of, of um, metta, what we think of or imagine to be metta-like feeling. So sometimes it can be so daunting to practice metta because we think, oh my God, I must have been left out. You know, everybody else got it, but somehow I, I was left out of the whole thing. And um, really it's just because we're not feeling it, but that's quite different. And of course the feeling does come along with it sometimes, of course, and you want to encourage that if it does. But really metta is an intention. Feelings change, you know. Feelings fluctuate. They are not dependable. So to take refuge in a feeling is to take refuge in that which is ultimately impermanent. Whereas to take refuge in metta as an intention is a true refuge, and it's always possible. We are resetting the course of our lives in a wholesome and positive and beautiful direction. In the text what is said is that a single moment of metta is more beneficial than offering someone food. And if you know the discourses, this is a really huge thing to say because um, there's so much talk about offering food. You know, there's so much about the benefits of offering food and what a wonderful thing it is to offer food. So over and over again, the, the fruits and benefits of serving um, serving people food or giving money for food or making sure that people have food. It's just such a such a huge um, aspect that you can read about. So when you come across this, you know, that a single moment of metta is more beneficial than offering food, it's really a big thing. The Buddha is saying something that is, is really big. Any moment of kindness um, is really remarkable in this world. I think the more we practice, the more tender-hearted we get, and the more easily we receive kindness from others, and we're resonant with the kindness that we see in others, instead of, you know, kind of over-efforting, I have to be good, or some kind of strain like that. There's something much more natural about it. I'm always very aware, I don't know what it is like, do you have tolls in Canada? You have toll roads? You do? Okay, yeah. So, and toll people? People that are, okay. Um, so in the in the states these days, there's a lot of um, kind of electronic tolls, so you get something on your car, and then you can speed through. But I really, I've never wanted to do it. It's cheaper, is what I hear. But I, I've never wanted to do it because I actually like the contact with the people that are in the toll booths. It's such a difficult job with... Um, all of the fumes and dealing with the public, dealing with people who don't even treat you like a human being, you know, sometimes. Um, the full range of human experience, you know, some people who I'm sure bring chocolate and things like that or, you know, pay for the person behind them or things like that that, that really would brighten up a day. But there's also really, really, um, you know, there have got to be with any kind of situation like that, other than the fumes, just having to deal with so many personalities. And, you know, I'm sure probably feeling disdain from a certain number of people or maybe rudeness or this or that. So I'm always, just being aware of that, I'm always so struck by um, talking to someone or, you know, just that interaction when that person um, is, is kind, 
You know, when that person um, smiles or, or looks at you in a connected kind of way, has that energy to look at you in a connected kind of way, I'm thinking, Mike, you know, this is, this is quite a remarkable thing to be able to do that. You know, to kind of, kind of be doing bodhisattva work in the middle of the highway by um, just, you know, maybe some, some people just that blessing over and over again. You know, blessing everybody that comes through their, their, um, their toll. Um, not that long ago, this is this. You know, I've been teaching for quite some years at this point, and um, not that long ago, um, someone came to uh, a retreat that I was offering, and this person had started. Um, I think she had sat the very first retreat that I had. Well, maybe maybe a couple years after the very first retreat that I had taught at IMS, so it was about 28 years ago. And in the 28 years since, she was there all the time. I saw her at every single retreat. She was 78, and she wasn't always able to stay overnight, but I would turn around and I would see her. She would come for a talk, or she would come for just the day, or you know, she would come for just an overnight. So... I knew her for a very long time. And what happened on this retreat is on the Wednesday night, it was a a seven-day retreat and then a weekend, on the Wednesday night of the retreat, she fell um, in one of the bathrooms and she broke her hip. So she was taken out of IMS via ambulance. And I was I was able to talk with her in the ambulance, so you know had a little bit of contact. But then she she went off to the hospital, and um, everybody you know everybody at IMS on staff is is very good, is very kind, and people were concerned. And I asked for updates, and and it was a full retreat, so I couldn't do that much myself. But I kept asking for updates, and <coughs> people were so you know kind and generous to give updates and let me know how she was doing. Um, but what happened is she died on uh, the Sunday night. She passed away on the Sunday night. She had a, a hip operation, and uh, she got an infection. And these things do happen in hospitals from time to time, and, and so she, did, she said she died. But what I was so aware of during the whole entire thing is that she didn't have family, and um, she didn't feel like she had close friends, and she didn't feel like she had any close connections. She told me uh, many times how lonely she felt and how isolated and how alienated she felt. But when this happened, the staff at IMS was totally embracing of her. And um, what happened, there were a couple of, 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 of good things. What happened is that uh, somebody on staff who was a nurse, they wouldn't let anybody else in because she was in intensive care. But they let this one staff person in because she could sweet-talk them because she was a nurse, so she could talk their language. So she got in, and she spent the hour before this person died telling her how much we all loved her. And so she spent a whole hour sitting with her, telling her, you know, personally, like, Narayan loves you, you know, yeah. Sally loves you, I love you, you know, over and over again. The people that she felt close to, she used the names of us and, and kept telling her that. And then, and then she went home, and an hour, late, an hour later she died. So, you know, this is, this is really good. Um, but the other really unusual thing that happened 
really amazing is that she died on Sunday. On Monday, I got an email from somebody who has sat this same retreat for a good 15 years. So she was sitting the same retreat as this this yogini who died was sitting. She got a call from her attorney that um, this yogini had died because she found out that she was her cousin. They had been sitting together this same retreat for 15 years. And neither of them knew that they were family. Now, neither of them knew that they were family. So, you know, you can look at that in a number of different ways as a missed opportunity, of course. But also, she had family. Now, she didn't know it, but she was actually sitting with family for a good 15 years there. So, so metta is a training. It's a capacity. It's a guide in our lives. And what we want to do, I was talking last night, I think, about just dropping um, metta into the psyche, to the body, in a homeopathic way. We want to drop it in and then listen to the reverberations. You know, feel the reverberations of dropping it in within our bodies, within our hearts, kind of the intimations, the subtle intimations. We are enlarging our capacity to hold all things in our hearts. And in this way, our perception shifts, and we do begin to see with metta. And the pronouns lose their importance. They become less significant. I want to read you something in this spirit by a a Rinpoche. The real glory of meditation lies not in any method, but in its continual living experience of presence, in its bliss, clarity, peace, and most important of all, complete absence of grasping. The diminishing of your grasping is a sign that you are becoming freer of yourself. And the more you experience this freedom, the clearer the sign that the ego and the hopes and fears that keep it alive are dissolving, and the closer you will come to the infinitely generous wisdom of egolessness. When you live in that wisdom home, you'll no longer find a barrier between I and you, this and that, inside and outside. You'll have come finally to your true home, the state of non-duality. The pronouns begin to subside in importance, and it's not that we don't say I or you, or we don't get weird, you know. We don't <laughs> we don't stop start stop using pronouns. There's a problem if you do come, you know, run to see me if you stop using the pronouns. It's you know, it's not like that, but we see them in a little bit more of a spacious light. They're not so solid, you know. They're not so boundaried. They're a little bit looser and more spacious. You know, when when this when this person died, it's 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 very sad for me because I have known her for such a long time, and she's still who she is, and I miss her. You know, I miss her, and at the same time, there's something about um, there's something about a a greater spaciousness and a greater um, comfort that comes to be. Um, in the recognition of non-separation. So the other aspect of metta is that it is unconditional, which does mean love that is free from grasping. There's a very short, little, tiny 
snippet of a sutta I want to read. One who actively develops loving kindness mindfully and without limit sees their attachments wane, their bonds become more thin. So this means that the strings we have, I'll love you if, that of course is not metta. It also means metta now, not later. You know, not after this goes away. You know, not after I become perfect or you become perfect or the world becomes perfect or I don't have to deal with this difficult thing in my life. Then I'll be ready for metta. It means metta in the very midst of things as they are not dependent on conditions. So metta is, of course, all-inclusive. It's a way to bring spaciousness to our difficulties. Ajahn Sumedho said, metta is not blinding. It means that you are willing to admit weaknesses, faults within your experience of life, without making it into anything. It's a clarity. The mind is clear, radiant, bright, and reflective, rather than just a pink cloud that we blot out every ugly thing with. Metta is not pink, or it's pink and every other color as well. So to bring space to difficulties, of course, means bringing metta to the difficult people in our life. And I want to just give you a hint about that. Um, I just want to do a time check. It's 8.15. Is everybody comfortable with me going on for a little bit longer? Yeah? Okay. Okay. It'd be hard to say, not me. (laughs) (laughs) But asking anyway. (laughs) Okay. So, um, so just just a hint or two about this. You know, oftentimes the classical way of sending metta to a difficult person is you you imagine that person, you bring that person to mind, and then you work with the phrases towards that person. But recently, fairly recently, I've um, kind of found another way that I want to share with you that is a little bit um, more creative. And um, I think it, it works very well as a kind of, of way in. So what this way is, is to um, bring this person to mind and then um, see what arises in relationship to that person. So what might arise is anger or fear or terror or irritation or annoyance or grief or, you know, um, insecurity or that kind of thing. Something is going to arise. And to then, after it's arisen, let the person step back, you know, so, so don't focus on the particular person. And then send metta to what has arisen in relationship to that person. Check it out. It's a very, very interesting way to go about this. When working with the experienced practitioners that I have this group of in Cambridge, it was incredibly interesting to for them to take this on, and a lot of insight comes out of it. I don't really want to tell you what the insights are. I want you to s- discover them on your own. Um, but it's quite it's quite an interesting way to work when you feel that it's very, very difficult to get in there with a particular person. This is a this is a, another way to go, you know. Again, bring them to mind. Let yourself feel whatever way you feel. Don't like I'm supposed to feel meta, you know. Nothing like that. Just feel honestly what you feel, and then let the person step back. Don't focus on the person. 
Be aware of what has arisen in reactivity. Send metta. Embrace those emotions, feelings with loving kindness and see how that goes. And then there's another another way to go, um, which is to think about the qualities that you don't like in this person. You know, they're arrogant, they're a pain, they, you know, they betrayed me, they are horrible, they did this, they did that. To um, really actively reflect on what you can't stand about this person or what you don't like about this person. And then, again, let the person step back as a person. You know, let them be a, a not-self in a way. And then send loving-kindness to the qualities of arrogance or um, whatever it might be. You know? And that's a very interesting thing to do as well. And then another, another way to work with the difficult person is to come up with phrases. You know, and there's, there's so many phrases. I'll just suggest a few. May I open my heart to all beings without judgment and without fear. You know, when you're including that person in the field of beings. Um, may I develop respect beyond this conflict and pain. May I see your Buddha nature. May you be free of fear and not feared. May I accept this fear and not be guided by it. May wisdom guide me instead. You know, so sometimes you can come up with a phrase directly tailored to this person, and then other times you can come up with a partner phrase for yourself. So just just putting it on your minds as a, a way to creatively work when things can be so stuck and difficult. You know, it's a it's another way in. So this is this practice of metta, whether formal or informal, whether sitting or in our daily lives. It's a delicate and ongoing process, and we do need to always honor how difficult things can be. Last fall, I was invited to see um, the um, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the, the Nobel Prize winner, um, who's done good work in Burma, at the Kennedy School in, um, in Cambridge. So all of these very bright young minds asking her these, um, these questions, you know. And so I was the beneficiary of listening to her answers to these questions. And one person said to her, I mean, the questions are really good. One person said to her, um, you know, I, I, are, how, are you angry and bitter and resentful? about the fact that you were kept under house arrest for you know, a good long time, um, I think almost 20 years. And do you resent the fact that you weren't, you know, your husband died when, when you were under house arrest, you lost contact with your children, um, you, know, you, were, you were locked in your house for all those years, and so don't you feel bitter and resentful and angry? And she said, no, I don't, which I had heard her said before that she didn't. But then she said something I really liked. She said, no, I don't, but I wasn't in prison like the other people who were doing the same work with me. You know, she's making that distinction. I wasn't tortured. I wasn't in the same horrible circumstances that other people were. I was in my house. It's a really run-down house, I can tell you that. But I was in my house. I wasn't in the same kind of situation. So if they're angry or bitter or resentful, I, I have metta. You know, I have, I, have, I have real understanding for that. So always to recognize our limits and recognize the tsunami of conditioning that can be there for us. 
and just doing our best. You know, just each one of us doing our best, freeing our hearts from the torments of heart the best we can, but always with compassion and mercy for how hard things can be. You know, in the metta practice, we say, may we be safe. But the fact is that life is not safe. It is not safe in so many ways. And so we don't say it like children, you know, may I be safe, knowing the lack of safety in this world. We say it with wisdom. And we look where real harm is. You could say that real harm is in not knowing how to train our minds. Real harm lies in not knowing the inexhaustible treasures within our hearts. Real harm lies in not being aware of the indestructible nature of our hearts. Real harm is unchecked ill will and the results of this unchecked ill will. Real harm is unchecked greed and the results of this unchecked greed. Real harm is unchecked delusion and the results of this unchecked delusion. With metta, we are connecting to the protective power of kindness. And it's known as a parita, which means a spiritual formula that is capable of protecting one from the inner torments of heart. This is what may I be safe and protected means. This is really what it means. So I want to end with just a little short story in the time of the Buddha, remember I was saying I was saying last night that whatever your your understanding is and however awake you may be, there are still conditions in life that you have to deal with. And so this was true for the Buddha as well. You know, not these romantic ideas that um, you know things aren't going to happen to us because that's that's not the reality of things. So in the Buddha's life, we can see. Um, from his life that this is so. He had a cousin who um, was competitive and jealous and hated him, basically, and hated him so much that at one point he tried to sick a wild elephant on him to kill him. So the story goes that um, the Buddha was standing there and um, you know this wild elephant was sicked on him and starts running towards him. And then the Buddha, of course being the Buddha, you know, started really pumping out the metta and um, <laughs> and surrounded this wild elephant with metta and then the elephant bowed down to him. Yeah. So, you, you just never know, you know. <laughs> and this is not to be tried at home. <laughs> but there is a protective power in metta that we, um, that we can know, that we can know within ourselves. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live in loving kindness and in inner freedom. Let's just sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.